This is a very, very emotional chapter in the book of Acts. And uh, to see it acted out is, really gives you the impact of it. We'll just read it this morning. And uh, I'm going to read, and I'm going to uh, <clears throat> begin at verse 7. There's just some introductory information there. Chapter 20, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, and Paul spoke to people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Sound familiar? <laughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking till daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Amazing story. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made it, this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Matilan. The next day we set sail from there and arrived in Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, 
Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them, what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, that was a very, very powerful moment. You know, Paul is saying goodbye to a group of people that probably he had won to Christ. He had grown them up in the faith. He had nurtured them. They were like his spiritual children. And now he's saying goodbye, and he knows that he will never see them again on the face of this earth. Now, you know, the question is, how did he know that? Well, Paul knew in, in verse 22, Paul writes, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And so evidently the Holy Spirit was just powerfully speaking to Paul, and at this moment, Paul knew that he would never see these people again. And history tells us that was true. He would lose his life before he would again see these brothers and sisters. Well, there's a lot in this chapter. You know, we have the story of the young man that falls asleep, and, and of course that's always a comfort for every preacher to know that you know, people were even falling asleep when Paul was preaching. So, but we're not going to take time there this morning. In fact, this morning we're going to focus in on one verse. Just one verse. And, you know, sometimes people will talk about the fact that they have a, a life verse. You know, just that verse that kind of describes their life, what they like to read every morning when they get up because it directs their day. And, and I think this is a great life verse, especially for Paul. There are a few verses that really describe his life and how he lived. This verse could well be Paul's life verse. And here it is, verse 24, chapter 20. I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I consider my life worth nothing to me. What does that mean? I consider my life worth nothing. Isn't, isn't every life of value? What, what is Paul saying here? In verse 19, Paul says this, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. I serve the Lord with great humility. A couple of summers ago, when Vicky and I went on sabbatical, spent a couple weeks out in out west and out in Wyoming. It was during one of those weeks that I really spent the week just focusing on this word humility. I think humility is, is extremely important quality in our lives because the opposite of humility is pride. Pride cometh before a fall. The scripture says there, it doesn't say that God hates a lot of things, but one thing God hates is pride. 
And so to be humble is, is very important. So I was trying to understand what does it mean, what does it look like to be humble? And it was, a, it was a very interesting study because what I discovered was the core of humility was, was deeper than what I normally perceive. You know, sometimes we, think of, sometimes we think of people that are kind of shy as being humble or people that, you know, don't take credit for anything that they do. Those are humble people. I discover that humility is much deeper than that, and it is certainly much deeper than taking the smallest piece of cake on the plate. Humility, what I discovered, was at its core, was understanding that everything you have is from God. The next breath that you take in this room is a gift from God. Your life is a gift from God. And so, humility is when, you, we, when we understand that everything we have is a gift from God, and we, we turn back to God and we say, okay, God, whatever your purpose for my life, whatever your purpose, that is what I will do. Or as Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. It's not my life, what Paul is saying here. And so, it's to say, God, if, if your purpose for me is to be poor, that I may demonstrate faithfulness in poverty, then I will be poor. If your purpose for me is to be rich, and to demonstrate generosity in all that you provide for me, then I will be rich. By the way, if, if you make more than $15,000 a year, you're in the top 10% the wealthiest people in the world. We have been given great riches. If God's purposes is, are, are to be infirm and to suffer health difficulty, that we might demonstrate patient perseverance, then it's to say, okay, then, then I'll live a life with infirmity. Or if it's to be healthy, that you may give great energy towards His work, then I will do so with all my strength. If it's to sacrifice your career for the sake of ministry, then it's to say, okay, God, I'll give it up. If it's to say, I will flourish in the career that you've given me so that I might extend your kingdom. It's just simply surrendering your life. You know, the Bible said that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. The most, that's quite a statement. To be called the most humble man on the face of the earth. And, and I thought about Moses' life, and I think I understand why he was called the most humble man. Uh, you know, Moses was with these people. And he was a very intelligent man. He grew up, he was educated in Pharaoh's court. And here he is, and he's out in the desert with a bunch of whiners. And, you know, I mean, I, I, if I were Paul, I would say... I think I'm going to go to a different church. I think I'm done here. I think I'm moving on. Here Moses is. He's in the prime of his life. The last 40 years of his life that he has to invest. And what is his call? It's to circle the desert with these disobedient, faithless people. Why? Because that was God's call on Moses' life. And Moses surrendered to that. And he died in the desert 
with those people. Very humble man. In Philippians 2.8, we see this. And being found in appearance as man, speaking of Christ, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ considered his life worth nothing to him, surrendered it, became obedient even to death on a cross. The, the ultimate example of humility. So, Paul begins in this verse, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My life is surrendered to God. Then he says, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. <clears throat> imagine that there was a flyer that said, imagine there was a flyer that said, uh, take a stroll at nine miles. Excuse me, just a minute here. I'm going to see if I can. Take a stroll at nine Imagine what that day might look like. You grab your blanket. You uh, maybe pack a picnic lunch. Maybe one of those lawn chairs, you know, that you can carry in a pack over your back. You go out to nine mile. You maybe walk out a quarter mile or whatever distance. And there you are and you just kind of leisurely enjoy the day. So you have a picture of what that might look like in your mind. Now imagine that there's a flyer and it says 10K race, nine mile this weekend. Well, you're going to leave the blanket at home. You're not going to pack the picnic lunch. You're certainly not going to carry your lawn chair. And we're talking about a very different day. This is going to be some work. In fact, you're going to have to train before you go out and start that day. Very, very different picture of one's life. So here's the question. Is your life a stroll or is your life a race? You know, do, do we look at our lives as a stroll or do we look at our lives as a race? Paul here looked at his life as a race. Paul had a very specific race, a very specific task. You know when you run a race, there's a certain way that you have to go. There's a certain course that you have to follow. You don't just go wherever you want. You follow the course that's set out. Paul has a very specific race here that is set out before him. In October of 2007, something happened. Something happened. I'm going to switch my. October 2007, something happened in Chicago at the Chicago Marathon that had never happened before and has never happened since. And that is halfway through the race, the marathon was called off. By 10 o'clock, it was, this is October now, it was 88 degrees. They'd run out of all the water at the water stations. Uh, 350 people had been taken to the hospital, one person had died. There were 36,000 people that started that race. 
But interestingly enough, even in spite of calling off the race, putting barricades across, putting buses across the road, uh, all kinds of barricades, 25,000 people still finished that race. I can guarantee you that if Paul had been in that race, he would have finished the race. And, and that was the heart of Paul. He had, he had this race, and there was no barrier that was going to stop him. He was committed to this race. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that Jesus gave me. So here's the final part. So what was the task that Jesus gave What was the task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul's task was to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And grace is defined this way. God's unmerited faith. God's unmerited faith. This was Paul's task in life. To tell people about God's unmerited favor, about his grace. Now, there's two levels of grace. And early church fathers talk about this often. We don't hear a lot about this, but there's something called common grace. Common grace is that grace that God extends to everyone. Everyone. People today that are cheating and committing crimes and people that are atheists and laughing in God's face, God extends his grace upon their lives. They have the grace today to get up and breathe. They have the grace to be able to laugh. They have the grace to be able to feel. They have the grace to be on an earth where the planets are held in their orbit. There is all kinds of grace that God extends to all people on any given day. But that's not the grace that Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about a grace far deeper. He's talking about this amazing grace. And it is amazing grace that Paul is a steward of and that is, is the kind of grace that he's talking about. Much more profound. Much deeper grace. It is a grace offered to everyone but not received by everyone. And this is the grace that had touched and changed and transformed Paul's life. And so Paul here, his task is so straightforward. Paul said, this is, this is why I'm here. I am here to tell people about this unmerited favor of God upon their lives. The good news of this unmerited favor. On Wednesday of this week, <coughs> Brian David Mitchell was sentenced to life in prison without parole. This was a man, if you remember, almost nine years ago, that abducted a 14-year-old girl at night point from her bedroom window. Remember the story? For nine months, everyone thought she was gone and she was discovered alive and, uh, and rescued out of that situation. It was interesting that in her interview, Elizabeth Smart, the name of the gal, said that one of the things she wanted to do in her life was to commit her life to helping and preventing 
uh, children who've been abducted. And you know that's so common that when people go through that experience, some, some very profound experience, they, they commit their lives to that purpose. And so as we look here at the life of Paul, what, what we see is that what, one of the things that Paul is doing here is he is committing his life, not certainly the most profound thing is the call that God had in his life, but there's also this element that Paul had experienced a, just a, this profound reality of God's grace in his life. There is a, a special passion here in the heart of Paul. And so Paul devotes his life to this task of being an advocate for this grace. This is why he would withstand beatings and riots and, and everything that he went through, the constant threats on his life because he experienced his profound grace. And you know, I don't, it doesn't tell us very much about what happened that day in the road to Damascus. But when he saw Christ in that vision and he was blinded and, and Christ met him, there was something very, very profound in that moment. Something that dramatically transformed his life and it had to do with grace. God's unmerited favor in his life. When he saw the risen Christ and saw his own sin in light of Christ, it was a experience of the reality of God's grace. Anytime you can combine the reality of one's sin and where we stand apart from Christ, our, our destiny, our future, our hopelessness apart from Christ, anytime you can combine the reality of sin and then comprehend the reality of God's unmerited faith, to begin to comprehend the depth of, of the blessing that God is offering through Christ, when you can combine those two together, what they equal is this word called grace. And Paul had a profound sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness and a profound sense of the unmerited favor of God in his life. Les Miserables is a novel written in 1862 by Victor Hugo. 1,400 pages. How many of you read it? Okay. You know, when that came out, the critics said that no one would buy it. There were 48,000 original copies, and people were fighting in the streets to get a copy of that novel. And I don't know where Victor Hugo, you know, there's nothing obvious about his Christian faith, but, but this is, this is a, a marvelous picture of the transforming power of grace. And you know, without going into the whole story, the essence of it is uh, Jean Valjean is the guy who is, he steals a loaf of bread to get for his uh, sister's children who are starving. And as a result, he goes to prison, he tries to escape, he put it back in, he spends 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Finally gets out, and nobody will take him in. He's a marked man. And finally the bishop takes him in, and he's there a very short time, and he steals the bishop's silver. Nine sports, cleans him out, and takes out. Well, he gets caught, and so he's brought before the bishop uh, by the authorities, and there he is standing there, and 
Bishop looks at uh, <clears throat> Jean Valjean and he says to him, Jean says, I'm so disappointed in you. He said, I, I gave you the silver and you left the most valuable pieces. And he walks over and picks up the silver candle holders and, and gives them to him. It's says there. And it was in that place of grace and unmerited, unmerited favor that Jean's life was transformed. He went on to uh, build a, a factory. He went on to become mayor, uh, to build hospitals, schools, and the rest of the story just kind of <coughs> goes to the transformation <coughs> of his life, despite, despite much opposition. Bishop said this to Jean Valjean. He said, My brother, you are no longer blocked to evil, but to good. It is your soul I buy from you. I withdraw from the black box in the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And at that moment, the bishop stands in the place of God and pronounces those words as it were to him. When you see yourself standing in the presence of God, caught red-handed, caught red-handed with stealing from God that which belongs to Him and you have taken for yourself, and you hear those words of saying, not why did you take so much, but why did you take so little? And God offers you not only what you took, but that which you didn't <coughs> That is the place that will transform your life. And that is the essence of the Christian faith. That is the essence of the transforming power of the gospel of which Paul was a witness. And so, hear once more his words. I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task testifying to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. Father, this morning, we get a glimpse into the focused life of the Apostle Paul. Father, this is a powerful, powerful message. And Lord, it has been preserved, not just for those of Paul's day, but it has been preserved for us today in this room as well. And uh, Lord, we would pray. I would pray today that you would use this transforming power of grace to touch each of our hearts. Pray for anyone here today who has yet to encounter your unmerited favor through the work and person of Jesus Christ on that cross. Father, we thank you for this love that you have to us. Father, we thank you.